Welcome to Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, and thank you for joining us for Central Study Hour. Wherever you are and however you're tuning in, we're so glad you're here. We'd like to send a warm welcome to uh, those in Osorno, Chile, because that is where our first hymn comes from. Uh, hymn 189, All That Thrills My Soul, says, Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine? True and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed we are to call him ours. Let's sing the first um, and fourth verse of hymn 189, All That Thrills My Soul. soul and he can make our souls well whole and well and that is our next song an oldie but a goodie it is well hymn 530 now this comes as a request from 10 people and I'm so excited to read all of their names uh, Patricia Reedy in Alexandria Virginia Paula Bussini in Orlando Florida Cecilia Perez in San Diego California Lisa Nicholson in Alexandria uh, Virginia Anthony Homan in Long Beach California Laura Faccio in Torino, Italy. That's our first request from Italy. And Kula Addy from Sac Central. <laughs> Let's sing the first, second, and third verse of It Is Well With My Soul, hymn 530.
showcase the day. If you have a special request, please visit us at our website at saccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Make sure to tell us where you're from. And also give us your song, any song that's in the hymnal, and we'll be happy to sing it with you uh, in the Sabbaths coming. Our last song this morning comes from our topical index of forgiveness. Uh, hymn 299, Forgive Our Sins As We Forgive. Uh, this comes from Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 12, uh, when the Lord taught us how to pray. Now, the Bible talks about two types of forgiveness, the way that the Lord forgives us and how we should forgive others. And so this morning as we sing uh, hymn 299, let's think that forgiveness, it's not just one act at one time, but a constant attitude that the Lord can give us. So let's sing hymn 299, uh, Forgive Us Our Sins As We Forgive, the first, second, and fourth verse. this morning, let us all together recite the Lord's Prayer that reminds us to forgive each other of our sins. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Our lesson study this morning will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Spottery, our senior pastor at Sac Central Church. Thank you, team. Appreciate that. And uh, good morning. Good to see you. And happy Sabbath. Good to see everybody here today. Trust you've had a good week, and uh, what a delight it is to come back together to study God's Word and, and uh, just delve into the book of Luke again. Um, you're enjoying your study so far in the book of Luke? It's been uh, tremendous. I've been enjoying it as well. 
And we want to uh, welcome those that are joining us uh, wherever you are joining us from. Uh, just a special shout out to those who are tuning in live stream. You, uh, you always type us and let us know where you're uh, writing from or watching from, Alabama and Maine and up in Canada and all over the place, Mexico. Um, we just wanna thank you for joining us and glad that you're uh, tuning in. Trust you. Uh, being blessed by the studies as well. And uh, we want to let you know, those that are tuning in, that you can call in for your free offer. It's offer number 21516, and all you need to do is call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at saccentral.org and we'll be sure to get you uh, the DVD or CD version, whichever you request, let us know. Uh, we'll get that right out to you as well. And please write in, let us know how you've been enjoying the programs as well. Well, we're right, going to go right back into the book of Luke here this morning, and uh, we're in chapter 3, lesson number 3, and uh, the lesson is entitled, Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? It's an important, important question, isn't it? Very important question. Uh, let's look at our memory text. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 20, and the author is recording a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he said to them, this is Luke 9 verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And that's Luke's version. In Matthew's rendition, it's the Christ, the Son of the living God. When we come to the subject of who is Jesus, uh, the author of the lesson, and I'm going to read the, uh, the intro here on, on Sabbath afternoon. He said, uh, he said, who is Jesus? The question is not a philosophical or a socio sociological gimmick. It gets to the heart of who, who humans are. Even more important, what eternity will hold for them. People can admire the works of Jesus, honor his words, extol his patience, advocate his nonviolence, acclaim his decisiveness, praise his selflessness, and stand speechless at the cruel end of his life. Many may even be ready to accept Jesus as a good man who tried to set things right, to infuse fairness where there was injustice, to offer healing where there was sickness, to bring comfort where there was only misery. Yes, Jesus could well earn the name of the best teacher, a revolutionary, a leader par excellence, and a psychologist who can probe into the depths of one's souls. He was all of these and so much more. And then he ends by saying, none of these things, however, come near to answering the most important question that Jesus himself raised. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that demands an answer and only that answer and on that answer, the destiny of humanity hinges. Powerful concepts. I mean, when we think about the life of Jesus, and by the way, um, Jesus is recorded in secular history. He was a known figure. It was known that he had followers and they were called Christians. Uh, out, this is outside of the sacred record, the scriptures. Uh, when you th even the, in the historical writings, Jesus is seen to have these, uh, has performed these wonderful miracles, do these great things. He was a, uh, he was, he was, how can I say, Jesus. He was Jesus. He was a kind man, a good man. He didn't put up with foolishness, um, especially hypocrisy, and uh, healed. And when we read the sacred record, uh, we see all the marvelous things that he did as far as what was recorded is concerned. 
Luke tells us that there, was many, there were many other things that Jesus did and taught that uh, there wasn't room enough to record. Uh, so that we, get a, we get a glimpse of the ministry of Jesus and one can look at the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus and you have to ask the question, who is this man? If you've never heard of Jesus, you have to ask the question, who could perform miracles, cause the blind to see, raise the dead, be compassionate, give uh, clever and probing answers to questions that he's re- he received at the hand of spies. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And when you go to the end of his life and you look at his death and the cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You ask the question, who is Jesus? Who was this man? And so that's the question that we're looking at here in today's lesson. Who is Jesus? And you have to say that he, he's more than just a teacher, more than just a healer, more than just a rabbi, more than these things. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll delve into, into more of this. Let's go to Luke chapter four. That's where we start our study. And we're on Sunday's lesson, <clears throat> reactions to Jesus. Reactions to Jesus. Jesus made some claims and we read those claims all throughout the, the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels. He made uh, specific claims about who he was. And so let's look at some of the reactions uh, to Jesus' uh, ministry and his claims. We're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verse 16 uh, right down through uh, to verse 30. And I'm just going to stop and pause every now and then to talk about a few things. Luke chapter four, and we start at verse 16. And by the way, last week we looked at the, uh, the, the baptism of Jesus. He was in the wilderness as well, and he, uh, he was tempted of the devil. You have those three big temptations recorded. And in verse 14, it says that Jesus returned after being in the wilderness, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, uh, being glorified by all. Now, we go to verse 16. So, he came to, where did he come to? Nazareth. What was Nazareth? What was Nazareth? Nazareth was the place he grew up, right? Essentially, he was there, the place where he grew up. It was 60, Nazareth is 64 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's between the lower end of the Sea of Galilee and the Great the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the Great Sea, but the Mediterranean Sea. And so it's pretty much in the middle down the, the lowest point of the Sea of Galilee and the, sea of, and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's 64 rather miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it's suspected that Jesus was ministering and came back to Nazareth around the spring of A.D. 29, uh, since he left in the fall of A.D. 27. So by this time, nearly half of the ministry of Jesus is completed by this time. Nearly half of the ministry of Jesus is past. Uh, if you want to read about his second visit to Nazareth, it was, it's recorded in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Um, you remember what Nathanael asked in John chapter 1, verse 46, when uh, his friend came to him and said, we found the Christ. And uh, what, did Nazareth, what, did, uh, what did Nathanael say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, he didn't live too far from Nazareth, so he would know uh, what type of folk uh, came out of there mustn't have been that great. But the claims of Jesus, and when we read in the Bible, we, the claims of Jesus tell us that he was the Messiah. So something good did come out of Nazareth. There's no doubt about that. And that's, it was an important question that he asked. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I was just looking uh, last night as I was doing a little review of the this, of this study, and uh, I just wanted to see how often Jesus was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth uh, throughout the Gospels. And numerous times, many times, 
Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. He had this thing hanging over his head, all his ministry, that can anything good come out of Nazareth? That place, Jesus of that place came from there and he, he's making certain claims about being the Messiah. And now he didn't necessarily come out outright and say those things and we'll, we'll look at some of those things here this morning. But the impression was very clear. He, this guy seems to be the Messiah, or at least seems to be making the claim. And he's coming out of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. So it's mentioned a lot of times, and that didn't seem to bother Jesus. And I think there's a good lesson in there for each of us. Doesn't matter where you came from, what family you originated from, you don't have to, um, you don't have to succumb to, to, to whatever that bad or bad reputation of the past might be in your life. If you have expressed faith in Jesus, he can make your life brand new and he sets you on a new course, and you don't have to let your past hang over your head. Uh, Certainly Jesus didn't, he was the Messiah. And so we read in Luke chapter four, he came to, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus' custom was to attend services on the seventh day Sabbath. So here is the giver of the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath as a man to give an example to all to keep the Sabbath. And so he, the Bible says he stood up to read. And, um, and when you read the Desire of Ages, it tells us that he had done this before as a child. And uh, now that his reputation um, uh, had been spread abroad, and we read that in verse 14, and you know, we're up to about half, the, half of his ministry at this point, the fame of Jesus has spread abroad. He'd come back to his hometown, and his townsfolk wanted to hear him. They wanted to hear what this man had to say. They were eager to hear him. And so in verse 17, it says, and he was handed, as he stood up to read, he was handed the book of the, uh, the, book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, you know, it was the duty of the synagogue equivalent of the early church deacon to take the scrolls from off the ark and then give them to the reader and then return the scrolls to the ark. And the scriptures that Jesus read here uh, were very likely pretty much in Hebrew, which by this time was pretty much a dead language. It wasn't common, but when, they, when the scriptures were read, they were read in, in Hebrew. And so we go on to verse 18. He stood up to read, he scrolled down to the place he wanted to find there in the book of Isaiah, and when he had found it, he opened the book and uh, the place where it was written, and we read verse 18 and 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. And he was, uh, we'll read in just a minute, but he was quoting this text which was known by the Jews of that time to be a a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then just before he sits down, he says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now it's interesting that he ends with the words, acceptable year, because the following words, and he left out the words, day of vengeance of our God. By the way, the the acceptable, uh, acceptable year is reminiscent of the Jubilee. Uh, when the slaves were freed, the de- debts were canceled and land was given back to its original owner. You can l- read about the year of Jubilee uh, in uh, Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, but uh, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. This was reminiscent of the Jubilee, great freedom, liberation, restoration 
uh, was, uh, was experienced on the day of Jubilee. But Jesus left out these words, the day of vengeance of our God, and to the patriotic Jew, this was the climax of the entire passage. To the patriotic Jew, this is what really mattered in these, in these entire verses. <clears throat> because to them, salvation belonged to the Jews and judgment and retribution belonged to the Gentiles. And so they prided themselves in the fact that they were children of Abraham and, uh, and all those Gentiles, all those who are not Jews, they're gonna suffer the retribution of God, you see. Uh, the Jews uh, had uh, national pride, there's no doubt about it. And uh, because of nationality, they felt that uh, they had salvation owing them. God, they were deserving of receiving salvation because they were children of Abraham. And they believed they were saved because of that, not because of submission to God. Two different things entirely. And another great lesson for us to, to remember and learn here. Doesn't matter what church a person acclaims or what truth they profess, albeit important and truth. Unless the truth has made inroads into the life and unless a person has made submission to God, um, one can't claim that they're on their way to heaven. There must be a submission of the will to Jesus Christ. One must receive Jesus and, uh, and die to self and allow Jesus Christ to live through their lives. But here the Jews of Jesus' day prided themselves because they were children of Abraham that salvation was there. And so the Gentiles, they were lost. And so they loved the end of these verses here, the day of vengeance of our God, because that, that was for the Gentiles. It wasn't for them. That was for the Gentiles. It wasn't for the Jews. And this type of thinking uh, prevented them from seeing and understanding the ministry of Jesus and understanding who Jesus was. We'll talk a little bit about that. Verse 21 here, let's uh, go jump, keep on reading here. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, verse 20, and sat down and the eyes of all were in the synagogue, in the synagogue were fixed on him, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? So uh, in Luke chapter four, it was, I shouldn't say in Luke chapter four, but it was expected that when the rabbi would come to a synagogue and would share scripture, he would end up preaching or teaching in this particular instance. It, uh, back then, teaching was more, f was more formal than teaching is today, much like preaching is formal today, you see. Teaching back then was very formal. And they expected a rabbi who would be visiting the synagogue, they expected him to deliver a sermon. And so Luke, in Luke, in Luke chapter four, simply gives the main points of the sermon here. He doesn't give the entire sermon because at times it would be a little lengthy, but he highlights, pulls out some highlights from the sermon and focuses in on what Jesus is saying here to, to talk about this, the, the state of mind of those in Nazareth and the Jews who are not ready to receive him as the Messiah. And so he began to preach. And he said, for before he did, he said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And they had a hard time receiving that. Their pride was offended. But more than this, Jesus had suggested that he was indeed the fulfillment of this prophecy. The, he was the long-awaited Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. He had, made a, he had made a declaration without making a declaration that he was indeed the Messiah. And they were offended. How can this guy, isn't he the son of Joseph? He came from Nazareth. Is it possible that he could be the Messiah? This individual that looks poor, 
not the monarch that we expected to come and deliver us from the Roman, from Roman bondage, this guy? And their pride was offended. Now look at verses 24 to 27. Let's jump down. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of, his, of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down off the cliff. Were they mad? They were mad. <laughs> How dare you come in here, make the admission that you are the Messiah, because you don't look like him, and then tell us, Jews, that we're in need, what does it say here in Luke chapter 4, verse 18? We're in need of having to preach or go, pre, the gospel preached to us. We're in need of having our hearts mended. We're, we're captives. We need to, you need to proclaim liberty amongst us. You think that we're blind and you're proclaiming liberty? You think that we're oppressed? How dare you come in here and tell us these things? Because retribution is for the Gentiles, not for the Jews. We're Abraham's children. They were mad and Jesus reminded them that it was the Gentiles that the prophets of old ministered to because they had an open heart to receive, uh, to receive the, the message of the true God. Whereas many lepers and many widows were bypassed, very likely because of their recalcitrance and because of their pride. And this is what Jesus was telling <clears throat> those sitting in the synagogue that particular day. You're sitting here, you call yourself Jews, but it may be very likely that the last part of Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 2 may just be for you if you don't open your heart to who I am, the Messiah. Very serious. Now, it's interesting, in these words, verse 24, Jesus begins the words by saying, assuredly, or in the King James Version, it says, verily, I say to you. That word assuredly or verily is simply amen. It's the word Amen. What Jesus was saying in essence was, I swear in advance to the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. Now, no one in that day and age would ever think about saying anything like that. In these words, Jesus was making, another, was making the claim again that he was the Messiah. In Judaism, you needed at least two witnesses to verify a fact. But Jesus witnessed the truthfulness to his own sayings. He speaks on his own authority and an authority that exceeded the Old Testament prophets and what their authority was. This was an incredible claim. It was a claim that he was one with God. Verily, verily, assuredly I say to you, I swear in advance to the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. In those words, he was declaring that he was, he was, on, he was one with God. And they knew it. They knew it. And these things just got the better of them. And so they drove Jesus out, took him to the edge of the cliff that were going to throw him off. But verse 30 says, in passing through the midst of them, he went his way. It's kind of an interesting thing. How is that, that possible? Did they just stop what they were doing? Did they recognize that they were, uh, they were crazy and they cooled down? Um, if we read Desire of Ages, we were led in to a little secret, and that is angels ministered to Jesus and took him out of there safely. 
and led him out of there. There was another incidence very similar to this where the angels did the same thing. Jesus' life couldn't be cut short now. He still had ministry to perform. He still needed to be ministering to the folk. He still needed to reach people, still needed to save the world, you see. And so in these words, Jesus claimed, in this story, Jesus claimed oneness with God. He was the Messiah. He wasn't well received. How about over at Luke? Someone's got Luke chapter 7, verse 17. Who's got that for us here this morning? Right over here. Okay, Luke chapter 17, verses 17 to 22. So let's go over there. And let's take a look at this story this morning. Luke chapter 7, verses 17 to 23. And um, this is the story about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had been taken to prison. He was languishing in prison. And uh, it's very interesting that uh, Jesus, that John rather, sends his disciples to, uh, to Jesus to verify whether Jesus is in fact the Messiah uh, who, he said, uh, who he said he was or who he was claiming to be. So uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region roundabouts. And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or we, look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind, and he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever should not be offended in me. Thank you very much. Excellent. So what was the question that John sent to Jesus? What was the question? Are you the one? The, the one? Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? That's right. Why? Why? Why did he ask this question? Why did he send his disciples to ask this question of Jesus? Uh, John's disciples were questioning Jesus' ministry, and John was disturbed that his disciples should have doubts. If they did, how would they encourage faith in Jesus as they ministered to the people? Now, admittedly, John himself, languishing in prison, didn't fully understand the ministry of Jesus either, his, his, the nature of his kingdom, or why he hadn't even come to set him free. Why hadn't he freed John from prison? But John wasn't going to express those concerns to his disciples. Instead, he sent his disciples to, to Jesus with this particular question, are you the one, or do we look for another? He sent them to Jesus with that particular question so that upon witnessing the works of Jesus, their faith might be bolstered as they witness those miracles, and perhaps John's courage might be strengthened as well as they came back with a report to him, you see. John's question could be probably rephrased, are you the type of Messiah we should be looking for? That was really, that's probably the question. John still had in his mind that perhaps Christ was coming to liberate the Jews from Rome. John didn't have a full understanding of the, of the, of the, of the kingdom of, of Christ, the kingdom that Christ was coming to establish, a kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom of the, in the heart that was to rule and reign in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, you see. Are you the type of Messiah we should be looking for? And so what happened in the story? The disciples go and they witness 
the works of Jesus. Wonderful things take place. Wonderful things take place. And then Jesus sends the message back to John uh, about all the things that he had done. And he gives him a little bit of encouragement and a gentle rebuke by saying in verse 23, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We can't, uh, we can't help feel a little sorry for John. I think we can relate to John. Here is the one who paved the way for the Messiah and um, sacrificed much in doing so, even suffered ridicule and misunderstanding. And now he's in prison and the one he paved the way for hasn't even given him recognition, hasn't even done anything to try to liberate him. Truly John's words, I must, he must increase and I must decrease were being fulfilled right here. And any follower of Jesus, uh, it, it needs to be the same. We don't always understand the workings and the way of God, but one thing that we can be sure of, he loves us and we can trust him. And those are not just cliche words, we can trust him. It might be difficult, it might be trying. And like John the Baptist languishing in prison, he clung a hold of everything he could, he could hold on to in the hope that so, someday he would understand. And he will, in the great by and by, he will. In the Bible commentary, Adventist Bible commentary, volume five, page 760, the author says, it's worthy to note that the supreme evidence Christ offered of his divinity was the perfect adaptation of his ministry to the need of human suffering and lost humanity. That's a pretty, pretty deep thought. So Jesus, the reception of Jesus, the reaction to Jesus and his claims were mixed were very mixed because of a misunderstanding of his ministry, because of pride. Pride was blinding the eyes of a lot of Jews. They, they had misapplied even the prophecy, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. They had taken those verses talking about his second coming and applied them to his first coming. And when this Jesus showed up, surely this guy can't be the Messiah, but he's done all these things. Who is Jesus? Let's continue Monday's lesson. Let's, go, let's talk about Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He is the Son of God, and He is the Son of Man. He is both human, and He is both divine. And there are many things we cannot fully explain in life, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist or they aren't so. Even if we can't explain how God can, that Christ can be fully man and fully God all at one. Um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't so. This is a great mystery, there's no doubt about it and uh, we ought to tread very carefully when touching on his incarnation. Let's go to Luke chapter one. Let's talk about who is Jesus, the son of God. Let's talk about him as the son of God. Luke chapter one, and we're gonna read verses 31 to 35. Luke chapter one, verses 31 to 35. Let's read here. Luke chapter one, verses 31 to 35. It says, and behold, you shall conceive, this is the angel who's come to Mary. And the angel says to Mary, behold, you, you shall conceive, or we will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be what? Great. Now, that would be equivalent to the declaration the angel made to Elizabeth, that her son would be great. John the Baptist would be great, but it goes on. It doesn't end there. He will be great and will be called who? The son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's right. 
will be called the, called the Son of God. Now, if you jump over with me to Isaiah chapter nine, just keep your finger there in, in Luke one, but go to Isaiah chapter nine, look at verse six and seven. There's, an un, there's a very strong similarity between verses six and seven of this chapter with verses 32 and 33 of Luke chapter one. Notice Isaiah chapter six, nine rather, verses six and seven. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There's a big similarity between these verses in Isaiah chapter nine and what we read in Luke chapter one, verses 32 and 33. What do these verses tell us about Jesus? According to Isaiah, these words refer to who? The Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, you see. They refer to one who was more than just a God, but one who was God, who would occupy the throne of David to administer uh, his kingdom. And we refer, and the reference here is to a, the messianic kingdom, the eternal kingdom, not a restored Davidic kingdom. Because remember in John 8, 36, John said, my kingdom is not of this world. If I had, my servants would fight if that were the case, but they don't. This is not my kingdom. I'm establishing another kingdom, a kingdom that would, uh, a kingdom of righteousness, reigning and ruling in people's hearts. So in essence, uh, the words tell us that Jesus is the son of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's inferior to God. It doesn't mean that he is, was born or begotten. It's just an, one of the names or titles given to Christ in the Bible that's designed to aid our minds in understanding the relationship that Christ has to us and the various aspects of his ministry. So as a father, or a son rather, is subordinate to a father, so Christ, who was one with the father, voluntarily humbled himself and accepted a position subordinate to the father. Did that make him less God? No. He was fully God. Took on a different role. He was fully God. He was the God-man. And, uh, and this, this, uh, the, the phrase, son of God, we can read about uh, all throughout the New Testament and the, uh, and the Gospels. Uh, when Jesus was born, and, uh, and right here at his birth, the Father confirmed that he was the Son, the Son of God. Uh, the Father declared Jesus was the Son of God at his baptism. Uh, he was declared the Son of God at his transfiguration, and we'll get to that in just a bit. He was again described or confirmed as the Son of God at his resurrection. Uh, John the Baptist testified that he was the Son of God, and the 12 disciples came to recognize him as such. Evil spirits even admitted that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus claimed that he was. It was that claim that brought about Jesus' death, ultimately his death. Now we're going to look at Luke 2. Who's got that one? Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Okay, thank you very much, appreciate it. And so, this declaration was made by who? This declaration was made by the angels to the shepherds, right? It's okay, fear not. Unto you is born a savior, Christ our Lord. This would be akin to saying Jesus Christ. This would be akin to saying Jesus Christ, which is a confession of 
faith in the union of the divine and the human natures in one person. The phrase and the name Jesus Christ is not a curse word. It's a holy name, a, a confession of faith. But Jesus Christ is really a confession of faith in the union of the divine and human natures in one person, that is Jesus Christ. He is, in essence, the Lord of the Old Testament who answers to Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the one in the same person. Now, it's important to know that Christ came, was God in the flesh. Otherwise, his life was just a life to be emulated with no promise of power. And his death would have just been a, some type of heroic or martyr's death without the promise of being cleansed of guilt and sin. In other words, his death would not have been a vicarious death, a death for you and for me if he wasn't, in fact, God in the flesh. He had to be God. There's one church that suggests he wasn't God, yet he died for the sins of the world. No angel, no man, not even a lesser God could die for the sins of, of humanity. Only the great lawgiver, only the great lawgiver could atone for the sins of the lawbreaker, sinners like you and me. Look, if I offended you, Mike, and I wouldn't, I hope not, but if I offended you, could anyone else forgive me on behalf of Mike? Who only can forgive me for offending Mike? Mike. And when I break God's law, his holy law, the foundation of his government, who alone can forgive me? Only God, the one who's issued the law. I've offended God. Only God can forgive. And in order for God to forgive, he must take upon himself the blow of the, and the results of my sin and my disobedience, which is death, right? And so only God could be the one to die for the sins of the world. No angel, no man, no one else, not even a prophet, not a teacher, but the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Let's talk about Jesus as the Son of Man. We're rolling right along. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. As a matter of fact, it was one of his favorite um, references to himself. It's mentioned 80 times in the Gospels and 25 times in the Gospel of Luke. Old Testament prophets were referred to as the Son of Man. One in particular comes to mind, the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord referred to him as the Son of Man frequently. Uh, we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that the Son of Man came with clouds to the Ancient of Days. Uh, the, the Jews of old knew that this was a refer reference to the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. It was a designation of Christ. Jesus was the Son of Man in a historic sense and also in a higher sense. The title designates Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. It points to the miracle by which the Creator and creature were united in one person. It testifies to the fact that sons of men, you and I, may become sons of God. It was in order to, be, it was in order to save us and to allow us to become children of God that Jesus took on the nature of man, you see. Someone has Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Who's got that one? All right, right over here. Thank you very much. Excellent. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Thank you very much. Jesus became, the Son of God became the Son of Man, why? 
according to those verses, that he might destroy devil and death. That's right. God as God could not die, so he became man in order to suffer the fate and die. And so his humanity means a lot to us, not just so that he might vanquish the devil, not that he might just overcome death, but he, he gives us a powerful example that can be emulated and he offers power and help in order to help us keep the commandments of God. His humanity means everything to us. If he didn't become man, he wouldn't have been able to give a powerful example. If he didn't become man, become man he wouldn't have been able to die for us, that vicarious death. If he didn't become man, he wouldn't become that great and merciful high priest who's able to secure us or aid us or help us in our walk and overcome and be victorious in our Christian walk. The use of son of man in Luke provides various insights into his nature, mission, and destiny of Jesus. I'm just gonna give you several references here, and it's in your lesson. Um, number one, in Luke chapter seven, verse 34, uh, he's referred to as the son of man, uh, giving reference to his humanity with no worldly address. Uh, he ate and he drank, and in Luke chapter nine, verse 58, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Secondly, it asserts, the, the phrase son of man, used by Luke, asserts his divine nature and status. Luke chapter six, verse five, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it refers to the fact that he came to seek and save that which was lost in Luke chapter nine, verse 56, and Luke 19, verse 10. And he did that by being killed and being raised the third day. And then fourthly, it provides, the term Son of Man provides a picture, complete picture of the suffering of the Messiah for the sins of the world. His death on the cross, his betrayal, his crucifixion and resurrection, and even as mediator. And Luke also refers to the Son of Man coming as our King, coming in the clouds of glory. So the, Luke uses the phrase quite frequently, uh, 25 times as mentioned earlier, and it designates Christ and his role and gives us these interesting insights into his nature and uh, his mission and his destiny. We go to Wednesday's lesson, The Christ of God, and we come to really the heart of the lesson, Luke chapter nine, and we'll spend uh, the rest of our time here and, and just refer to Thursday's lesson. Luke chapter nine, verse 18 through 27. Luke chapter nine, verses 18 through 27. Around the middle of AD 30, about two and a half years into Christ's ministry, uh, we're told, or we understand that Jesus withdrew from public ministry to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And he did that for about a half a year so he could devote his time to instructing his disciples. It's very educational to realize that Jesus took time out of public ministry to spend time discipling his disciples. After all, the church was gonna be built on their shoulders, right? So he took that necessary time to minister and to help uh, his disciples. You know, sometimes we get very excited about doing evangelism, and it's good, and we ought to be very excited about doing evangelism, and sometimes we can get very busy just reaching out to the lost, but there's, there's time needs to be spent the pastors and the elders of the church need to spend time working with our members to disciple, to train them in ministry so that the work of God might go forward more powerfully. Jesus gave us a very powerful example of this when he took about a half a year off to out of public ministry to, to disciple his uh, disciples. Now we're gonna read Luke chapter nine, verse 18. Luke chapter nine, verse 18. <clears throat> Notice what it says. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? This was a powerful question. And unfortunately the disciples had to admit 
that they didn't see him as they viewed him. They thought that maybe he was John or maybe Elijah, someone, one of the prophets. But then Jesus comes to the all-important question, verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Because their success in ministry, their future, and their eternal destiny hinges upon this one question. Who do you say that I am? Each of us has to answer that question too, don't we? Each of us have been confronted with that question. And our, and our answer uh, makes a world of difference to our eternal destiny, you see. After revealing his authority over nature, his power over demons, his strength over disease, his ability to feed the 5,000 plus, his power over death, Jesus confronts his disciples with two questions, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? And that one is the all-important question. Look at Luke 9, verse 20. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, who? the Christ of God. In Matthew's translation, Christ the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? And as a spokesperson for the group, Peter declares you are the Christ of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. How you and I answer this question will make a difference in where you and I spend eternity or how we spend eternity, either living or dead. Jesus definitely claimed to be God. Someone has John chapter 14, verse one. Could someone read that for us right over here? John chapter 14, verse one. Thank you. John chapter 10, verse 30. If you would just turn there with me, keep your finger here. Uh, these are some of the claims that Jesus made and they have to be given consideration. John chapter 10 and verse 30. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Major claim, claiming oneness with the Father. John chapter 14, verse one. John chapter 14, verse one. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Hmm. You believe in God, believe also in who? This is a call to worship Christ, another claim. And can we worship Christ if he's just a man? If he's just another prophet, a teacher, a rabbi? This is a claim to his messiahship, that he's one with God. Every person must answer the question, is his claim, is Jesus' claim to deity true or false? Either he is Lord, either he is a liar, or he's an outright lunatic. Let me explain. If when Jesus made his claims, he knew that he was not God, then he would be what? Lying. He would be lying. But if he was a liar, then he also he was a hypocrite because he told others to be honest, whatever the cost, while at the same time, he was teaching and living a colossal lie. More than that, he was evil, a deceiver, because he deliberately told others to trust his, their eternal destiny with him. If he could not back up his claims and knew they were false, then he was a deceiver. He would also be a fool because it was this claim, one with God, that led him to the cross. So he'd not only be a liar, but he'd also be a fool and a deceiver. If Jesus was a liar, a con man, and therefore evil and a foolish man, then how can we explain the fact that he left the most profound moral instruction and powerful moral example that anyone has ever left on planet Earth? How can we explain it? Could a deceiver teach such unselfish ethical truths and live such an exemplary life as Jesus did? Is it possible? Now, if it's inconceivable, inconceivable for Jesus to be a liar, then could he have thought to be God and have been mistaken? After all, it's possible to be sincere and to be wrong. We need to remember, for someone to believe he is God, 
every, especially in a culture that is fiercely monothe monotheistic, then to tell others that their eternal destiny depends on him reflects the thoughts of a lunatic. So the question is, was Jesus? Was Jesus a lunatic? Christian philosopher Peter Kreft presents this opinion. He said, Jesus has in abundance precisely th those three qualities that liars and lunatics most conspicuously lack. Number one, his practical wisdom, his ability to read human hearts. Number two, his deep and winning love, his passionate compassion, his ability to attract people and make them feel at home and forgiven, his authority. Number three, his ability to astonish, his unpredictability, his creativity. Liars, he goes on to say, liars and lunatics are so dull and predictable. No one who knows both the gospels and human beings can seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic or a bad man. So if Jesus is not liar, and if he's not a lunatic, then he must be Lord. He must be Lord. Other self-proclaimed gods and saviors have come upon history stage, but Jesus is still here, standing head and shoulder above them all. The modern historian Arnold Tonby spent page after page dis discussing the exploits of human history and so-called saviors of society. Those he tried to prevent, those who tried to prevent some social calamity and uh, cultural disintegration by heralding the past or predicting the future. After covering such individuals for 80 pages in the sixth volume of studying history, Tonby finally comes to Jesus and finds there is no comparison. Listen to his words. He says, when we first set out on this quest, we find ourselves moving in the midst of a mighty marching host. But as we have pressed forward on our way, the marchers company by company have been falling out of the race. The first to fall were the swordsmen, the next the anarchists, the next the futurists, the next the philosophers, until at length there was no more human competitors left in the running. In the last stage of all, our motley host of would-be saviors, human and divine, has dwindled to a single company of wannabe gods, and now the strain has been testing the staying power of these last remaining runners, notwithstanding their superhuman strength. At the final ordeal of death, he goes on to say, few, even of these, would-be savior gods have dared to put their title to the test by plunging into, icy into the icy river. And now we stand and gaze with our eyes fixed upon the farther shore. A single figure rises from the flood and straightway fills the whole horizon. There is a savior and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Of course, quoting Isaiah 53 and referring to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus is either liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is Lord. And we confess and we say here today that he is Lord. There is no doubt about it. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he the Son of God, the Son of Man to you? Have you invited him into your heart? Is he truly the Lord of your life? Or may he be each and every day is my prayer. Thank you for joining us for the study again this morning. And those that are tuning in, thank you as well. Don't forget to call in for the free offer. It's offer number 21516. Uh, email us or call us on the number or the email address on your screen. And write in, let us know how you're enjoying the programs. We'd love to hear from you. God bless. And God bless you.